and turn to the book of James. We're in chapter 5, we're beginning chapter 5, and some of you are like, finally, we're almost done with this series. This has been a hard series, this real faith, real life, because James has been hitting us over and over and over again with these commands to do this and don't do that and pursue this and don't pursue that and follow this way and don't go that way. And, And it's been overwhelming at times, almost 60 what we call imperatives in these five short chapters in this letter. And we come to the end of it, but it's not going to get any easier. And so we've got a couple more weeks, in fact, four more weeks, including today, where we'll be closing out this letter. And what he's going to address is the issue of money today. Then he's going to talk about us being patient and waiting on the Lord next week. We're going to talk about the power and provision of prayer uh, in a couple weeks. And then finally, we're going to talk about what it is for us to bring back those believers who have wandered away from the truth and how to bring them back into the fold. And that's how James is going to finish out this letter. But today we come to a very tough passage of scripture. The words that James is going to use are going to really come at us very harshly. And we've got to stop and recognize that James's primary audience today wasn't the church itself, but an outside group of people. And yet the application, even though it wasn't written per se to us, has great uh, substance and truth for us to hear and to check how we're living. Even though we're going to look at a bad example of ungodly people, we can ask the question today, am I living the way I'm supposed to? Am I using God's resources and God's money the way he would call me to? Now, as a way of point of reference, as I did in the first service, this technically is a one-point sermon. I know there are three points in the outline, and what I'm going to say is I'm going to devote the next 40 or so minutes to my first point, 40 minutes in the first point. Then I'm going to take five minutes in the second point and three minutes in the third point, okay? So I don't want you to wonder when in the world is he going to get to point number two, point number three. He's a third of the way through the sermon. I want you to know 90% of my time is going to be in the first point, and I think that's an important place where we need to sit. But let's look at these six verses, these first six verses of James chapter 5 and glean what God's Word has to say to us us. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and, they, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed or harvested your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and you have murdered the righteous person, the one who does not resist you. Let's pray. Father God, these are very tough words. These are harsh words. These are words that seemingly slap us in our faces. And yet we know that every word comes from your mouth and we ask for discernment and know how to apply these words to our lives. So Lord, as we explore what they meant to an original audience, let us be asking the question, how might that original audience be like ourselves? How might we see ourselves in some of the practices of the unbelieving rich? 
And instead of just pushing it away and saying, well, that was their problem, that was their sin, that we might put the mirror of God's Word before us and say, are some of my tendencies, some of my issues, some of my struggles the same ones that that original audience faced? And Lord, in light of their bad example, that we might live differently. And hopefully, Lord, that we might see through your eyes how we ought to look, how we ought to spend, how we ought to save the resources you've given. And Lord, how we may be called to give instead of keeping them for ourselves. I pray that you would challenge us, but also encourage us through your word this morning. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. My sermon title this morning is very simple, Money Talks, right? We've all known that adage and we've seen how that adage has come true. That if you got money, you get to do the talking. One comedian once said, money does talk and what it says to me, goodbye. Okay? And how true is that? With three boys, uh, I'm seemingly handing out money all the time. And I was told by an older individual this morning that uh, the big items still are yet to come. That I'm handing out $20 bills. He says, wait till it's hundreds and thousands of dollars that are spent. In fact, it was really awesome. A walking illustration. One of our teenage girls came up as I was talking to her dad and said, Dad, I need $40. And he says, see, the pastor was right. We're always handing out money. But James is going to speak to us this morning on this subject of money because the way we spend our money is going to tell a lot about who we are, but even more importantly, about where God ranks in our lives. Jesus articulated this, and I believe that James knows and remembers what his stepbrother or half-brother said, especially during the Sermon on the Mount, And he knew that what Jesus had said rang true, and he reminds the people in his day of what his half-brother had said. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And James is going to say, be careful if your treasure's in your money, if your treasure is in your possessions, if your treasure is in your wealth and riches, it's in the wrong spot, because that's where your heart is. And these people that he's going to talk about this morning had their priorities all messed up. But you know what the problem is? As Christians, it's easy for us to think, well, those are the rich people. I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. And the problem is, is because we live in such an affluent land, in such a rich-filled place, be with huge houses and lots of cars and lots of possessions. It's easy amongst us who are living the lifestyles of the rich and famous to think that we don't have resources. But I want to remind you that every study that has been done all agrees on the same thing. That the majority of the people that inhabit the earth live on less than one dollar a day. Now I'm going to ask you this morning to be really honest and I want you to raise your hand of anybody who didn't make a dollar this week. We all are rich. And what we do is, we all take our riches and think we're poor. The reason why is it's the frog in the kettle. We live in a rich land and in a rich culture and all of that, and we think we're poor, but we're really not. And here's why. Because we have more food than we need for today. We have more clothing than we need for today. Some of us will say, but I don't have a nice car. But you do have a car. Most of the majority of the world does not. You say, but my house isn't as nice as my neighbor's. That's okay. Most people don't have a house. And we need to recognize this morning that the sting of materialism doesn't come to the rich as we define them in our own eyes. 
but it comes right to our footsteps. Ron Sider, in a book that he wrote a couple decades ago, said the following. He said this in in the book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching about the deadly danger of possessions. We all know that Jesus warned that possessions are highly dangerous. But we do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States live in the richest society in the history of the world, surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors. Yet, we as Americans insist on more and more. You see, in our world today, we are bombarded by this issue of materialism. And we've got to ask the question today, why would James dedicate six whole verses to a group of people who probably readily would not have heard that message in great uh, frequency? Here's the reason why. He's writing to a group of people, and notice that the pronouns all change. Come now, you rich. He's not talking to this group of brethren that he's talking about. In fact, in verse 7, notice what he says. Be patient, therefore, brothers. In light of what the rich are doing, you Christians, be patient. And so these six verses change the audience. For the first four chapters, he's dedicated himself to preaching to the Christ followers amongst himself, amongst him. And then, for these six verses, he moves to speaking to those outside of it. There's a couple reasons why I believe he's doing so. Number one is because rich people had found their way in the church. In James chapter 2, remember a rich man comes in, finely dressed, he's got a gold finger, all this beautiful clothing, and the ushers are falling all over themselves because they're like, hey, the rich dude showed up, let's give him the best seat. And they rip one of their own brothers who is poor out of the seat and says, hey, rich man sits in your seat, you sit at his feet. And they show preferential treatment. And James says, listen... I'm going to preach to the visitor amongst you so that you recognize that showing preferential treatment to the rich with this idea that if I show him favoritism in the church, he might show me favoritism in the field is wrong. God is no respecter of persons, and if he was, surely it has nothing to do with our bank accounts. The second thing that we need to recognize, the reason why he devotes this time to these unchurched people, and I think it's important is a recognition that the people of God were really suffering under the hands of the rich at the time. And James is saying, hey, you who are experiencing trials of many kinds, be filled with joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when those trials of many kinds come your way. And what was happening is on Sunday morning, these people would come in and they were hurting and they were broken and they had been defrauded of their uh, wages. And they come into church and they're all worked up. And God says, be patient, my brothers. Be patient, my children. Because the time's coming. Right now it seems as if the rich have got it all going for them. It seems like the rich get it uh, their way all the time. But a day is coming where misery is going to meet them at their doorsteps. So be patient. Your time uh, of, of luxury is coming in heaven. Where you will be endowed with every spiritual gift under heaven. You'll be given that at one day. And those that have defrauded, those who have uh, decimated the weak and the marginalized on earth, will one day get their due. God is faithful, as we sang. The final thing that I think it is, is what I would like to illustrate with how my dad used to do discipline. 
My dad was not a quiet disciplinarian. He was loud. He was from the Middle East, man. When you got in trouble, he wanted the whole neighborhood to know it. And I one day asked him, why, why are you so loud in your discipline? And he said, so that the whole house can take warning. You see, my dad would recognize that in this one instance, one of his boys had gotten into trouble. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to make sure that the two other boys were put on notice, right? So he would be extra loud so that we would hear our brother being chastised and, and, and disciplined that we might know and recognize that even though maybe we haven't been caught or maybe we haven't sinned yet in that particular way, that there's a warning that comes to that kind of living. And what James is doing is he's using this passage for an outside group of people and he's doing so because he knows what I know, what I think if we're honest we all know, that materialism is something we all struggle with, right? No one has to teach a kid to want to be rich. Nobody ever has to teach us as human beings to want more. We don't have to educate our kids in that way. We don't have to educate our young people in that way because it's a part of the human nature. We want more, and many times we'll do all that we need to to get it. So James gives this example of the unbelieving world outside of the church for our good. But he gives us also, in this chastisement of their lives, hope that we can find through Jesus Christ. Notice the focus of the unbelieving rich. Let's sit here for a while. The focus of the unbelieving rich. Right away in verse 1, James drops a bomb on the rich. So notice you're the rich guy. You happen to come to church. You're not sure what church is going to be about. You're the boss. You're the landowner. You even see some of your own slaves in the assembly. And you sit down to be a part of this new service. And they say, hey, Pastor James sent us a letter. And we're going to read the last part of the letter after we've sung our songs, after we've celebrated the Lord's Supper. We're going to hear the reading of our pastor and what he has to say to us. And the rich guy says, all right, this is pretty interesting. I like the songs that were sung. The guy did a nice job praying. Now let's hear what their pastor has to say. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. By the way, rich guy, stop by our welcome center and grab the cup that we've given you as a way of saying thanks for coming. Oh my goodness. Come now, rich, weep and howl for the miseries are coming upon you. Just a quick thought I know there are some that will say in, in our world that preaching should always be positive. It should always uh, be half full type of preaching, not half empty. I don't see any full in this passage. This is harsh. This is hard teaching. Remember the apostles? This is hard teaching. Who can understand it? And James levels the rich in the culture around him. And notice what he says. He says, listen, misery is coming upon you. Now be careful. Be careful that you don't interpret through your lens instead of God's. So your lens would say, yep, the rich need to be nailed for that, right? Well listen, he's not speaking to just all the rich, but the ungodly rich. You see, the Bible never says, you will never find a passage in the Bible that says having riches, having money, having possessions is a bad thing. In fact, some of the big hitters of the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Job, Josiah, and then you move to the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, 
These guys were all, guys and gals, were rich. And God used them in powerful ways. Nowhere in the Bible does it say having money is sinful. Remember, and we do this all the time, that money is the root of all evils. Uh-uh. The root, uh, the, the, um, the love of money, thank you, I'm going to mess it up. The love of money is the root of all evils. Money is neutral. Money can be used for the most sinful of activities or the most sanctified of ones. Money is neutral. Money doesn't have a soul. But money and possessions in the hands of the sinner is a great temptation. And before us, we have a decision. With our money, we can go the way of the unbelieving rich and pursue the riches through our own wisdom, or we can pursue God's wisdom with regards to the money and the resources he's given. The ungodly rich, the unbelieving rich, chose to do it their way. And he says, misery is coming. Notice the phrases that he uses. He uses, first of all, the phrase of weeping, and howling. That word howling is, is the word that I want to focus in on. It's a word that, that is the literary device, an onomatopoeia. And what that onomatopoeia is, is a literary device where a word is pronounced in such a way that it describes actually what it says. Howling is that kind of word. When you hear howling, you literally can conjure up, as you hear that word pronounced, a, a howling. It sounds like what it's describing. Well, in the Greek language, it does the same thing. The Greek word for howling is ooadzo. And, and what it, the idea here is the howling is the ooadzo. And if you were to go over it again and again, the idea is that it's persistent, it doesn't stop. And so ooadzo, ooadzo, ooadzo. It gives this idea of a straining, a screaming, a longing for an alleviating of the pain that they were about to suffer. This isn't crying, this isn't sniffling and wiping with a Kleenex. This is weeping and wailing and howling like an injured animal saying enough is enough, I want out of this. And the rich one day will have these miseries upon them where they will weep and they will howl of the pain and sorrow that they are experiencing. Now what would cause this? The Bible says that they had pampered themselves. And we don't have to go far in Jesus' stories where he speaks of the parable of the rich fool. And the rich fool continues to build and, and, and create wealth and, and he keeps it for himself. So he builds bigger and bigger barns and bigger and bigger silos. And he says, now I can live a life of ease. And what God says is today your soul is required of you. And the problem is, is for his entire life he pampered himself. For his entire life, he pursued his riches. For entire life, he trusted that his riches would take care of him. But in the day of judgment, he was ill-prepared to meet his maker. And in that moment, when you have pursued your riches, and you have made them your God, that day of judgment will not be a day to look forward to. It will be the beginning of your wailing and howling from the pit of hell. Harsh words, but words that ring true. Why? Well, we see three sins that they were committing in their materialism. First, they were hoarding their money in a greedy way. Notice verses 2 and 3. 
Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be an evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Why? Because you have laid up your treasures in the last days. There are three indicators of wealth in the first century, and James identifies them. The first one is food and grain. Write that down somewhere. The first commodity that the rich had that the poor didn't was an abundance or a surplus of food and grain. And he says, listen, where do we draw that out? Your riches have rotted. Well, riches don't rot. Your 401k doesn't rot. It's not a living thing that it would decay or rot. And the idea here in the original is that their, their access of food and grain had been rotten because they didn't use it in a sufficient amount of time. And so they found themselves as a people seeing what they had hoarded for themselves turning bad. And you say... How does that apply to me? We throw a ton of our food and our grain away. You see, in James's day, only the rich had pantries. The rich didn't have what we do. We go home and, and we've got not our daily bread, but we have our weekly bread and our monthly bread. Some of us have our yearly bread. My aunt and uncle who once uh, recently moved to San Antonio, I would all, always tell them, and I don't mean this as a, as a um, convicting statement, but just a funny one. They had a bomb shelter. You could go through the millennial kingdom and not leave their basement and never, you probably gain weight. Okay? They just had, they had just tons of food. And, and that's true of, of, of all of us. You, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it means nothing to us in the 21st century. What it meant to the people then was that I'm going to eat today. I'm going to pray that God would give me the strength and the ability to make a living so that I can have daily bread. So Lord, supply me with what I need today. But the rich didn't have to worry about it, and quite frankly, either do we. Turn your attention to the screen for a moment. I want to show you how we hoard our food and grain in a way that just is unthinkable. Every year, each of us as average Americans throw away anywhere from 209 to 254 pounds of edible food. That means, if you think about it, almost every day we throw away about three quarters of a pound of food away. Good food. Food that could have fed a lot of other people, could have fed us longer we throw it away. I can't tell you in the catering business how much waste I see from people of just throwing stuff away. And we do it. And every once in a while we think about that kid that's starving in Africa. But, but for the most part, if you were to go to any restaurant, if you were to go to any uh, food establishment, you would be blown away by the amount of food we throw away. Why? Because we're like, you know what? Why would I eat leftovers when I can have something new? And we have that luxury of something new. And, and I'll tell you, how often do we throw food away from our refrigerators just to fill it up again? Notice, 30 to 50% of the food that we will uh, buy in the supermarket will be thrown away in the homes without ever using it. You want to save some money? One quick way is eat the food that you buy. It's that simple. Now notice, how would this be changed? 
this is all, by the way, this isn't a Christian study group. This was done by um, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, I believe, is where I drew this from. If, if the U.S. wasted just 5% less food, it would feed 4 million Americans. If we got rid of 15% of our waste, we could feed 25 million Americans on an annual basis. What it comes down to is that pie chart, 40% of the food that we buy is never eaten. We waste food. And wasting food is a picture of materialism. We know we're going to have plenty. We know we don't have to worry about it. So that food that was left on our plate, well, we don't worry about it. And here's one of the things we do. We chastise our children about it, right? But we don't control ourselves. So just like in the day where they were hoarding food and grain, we find ourselves doing the same. Notice the second thing, clothing. Clothing. <clears throat> in a world where most of the poor that James is talking to had only the clothes that were on their backs, a sign of wealth was to have more than one change of clothes. That means all of us are wealthy. We all have a change of clothing. Now, real quickly, <clears throat> we'll say, come on now, Tim. Let's be sensible. Of course, our clothing, we've got to have clothing. We've got to wear different things. We've got to be able to wash things. and all. I get that. And what we'll do is we'll paint pictures of people that have just extravagant tastes. Go back just a couple decades to the Philippines. The Philippines was led by a, a man and a woman named the Marcos couple. Do you remember the Marcos family? Uh, Imelda Marcos and uh, I forget his name. Uh, Marcos, Marcos, help me out someone. Ferdinand. Sarah, you should have told me that, right? She's smiling. Hey, we're talking about the Philippines. Okay. And Imelda Marcos, when they had to leave office because of scandal, her and Ferdinand, they uncovered. We knew about her shoes, right? We knew about the thousands upon the thousands upon the thousands pairs of shoes. Did, she, did you know she had over a thousand bras? What's she going to do with those? Okay. Now you're wondering, how the pastor know that, right? I asked Amanda, I said, I used that in the first service. She said, it was okay. It was okay. People are okay with it. So if my wife says it's okay, I'll move on. Okay. She had hundreds of coach bags that hadn't even made it out of their boxes. 3,500 dresses. 3,500! Even the president's wife can't wear that many clothes, right? There's not enough formal gatherings for that. And we look and we say, well, I'm not the Marcoses. Well, that's great, but you're not the poor either. So you're moderately rich, maybe not extravagantly rich, but here's the problem. You think you're not moderately rich. I don't think I'm moderately rich. But when 80% of the world looks at us, they say we're uber rich. We're uber rich. They can't even fathom that we have a whole room in our, our house called the walk-in closet. That you have to walk into the closet. Some of us have clothing that we haven't worn in weeks, months, years. This is where I stop and say we have the garage sale coming up soon. Okay? <laughs> Preach it. You know, it's funny, in the first service, Kate Duff screamed a hallelujah in it. Very unbecoming, by the way. But, but listen, every year, I'm blown away 
that we can hold a garage sale, right? You would think after one year we would have run out of stuff as good Christian people, right? No, we've had this annual event, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. We're like, hey, we got more and more stuff. And so the unbelieving rich that James is just coming down hard on, and we're like, preach it, brother, preach it. In the 21st century, doesn't it come a whole lot closer to home than we want it to? Oh, my goodness. We hoard things. Finally, it is the gold and silver. It is the gold and silver. James knew, of course, that precious metals like this were not subject to literal corrosion or rust. But he says in the text, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I want you to notice what he's saying. He's saying the corrosion, the inability for your riches to accomplish what it needs to, has to do with your flesh. What that means is, you're going to put your hope in gold and silver... And you're going to put it in there to protect yourself, and it's going to find itself unable to do so. What in the world is James talking about? Scholars believe that God has given James a picture into the future, that a time is coming, Rich, that you're going to mourn and wail. James writes this somewhere between 49 AD and about 55, some even say 57 AD. So a full 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 15 years from what James writes, the worst pain and sorrow is going to fall upon Israel and Jerusalem. Jesus would prophesy of it in the Olivet Discourse when he would say that the temple will be destroyed and one stone will not be laid on top of another stone. That prophecy would be fulfilled in AD 70 when all of the Roman Empire armies would once and for all be done with dealing with all of the issues of Israel, all of their rebellion, and they would bring in their most famed general and his mighty army and they would decimate all of Jerusalem. And you know what wasn't going to work? in that day having a gold member credit card and your flesh was going to be destroyed one million jews in a year's time would be put to death and james is saying in that day you've put your hope you've put your trust you've put your allegiances to money and resources and they are literally going to stand by and watch you be destroyed they're not going to be the answer One of the ways to illustrate this was an interview I saw late in the life of Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, billionaire, brilliant man. I have nothing but respect for that guy in his mind. Amazing stuff that he has been able to do at Pioneer. But in the latter days of his life, as his body was being eaten from cancer, he said this to uh, Charlie Rose, the interviewer. He said, listen, none of my money can do a thing for the cancer I have. None of my ideas can ever bring me the hope that I might be given another day. You see, the problems of this world, money can't fix. Oh, we think they can, and maybe for a little while they might alleviate some issues, but they can never be the solution that we're looking for. And so he says, listen, your food and grain, don't hoard it. It's of no good, it's rotting. Your clothing, it's moth-eaten. Your riches, your gold and silver, they're corroding right before your eyes. He says, in the last days you have stored up treasure. The idea here is that when they should be giving themselves over to Jesus, they've given themselves over to themselves. But notice, they hoard, 
Second, they hold it back. They hold it back, and they do so deceitfully. Verse 4, like I said, we're going to sit here for a while, so don't lose heart. We're getting somewhere. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed or harvested your fields, which have been kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. As bad as hoarding things may have been, it was even worse that these people were using the poor to advance their riches, to make greater margins of profit. And James condemns a couple corrupt practices. The first corrupt practice that James is talking about involved the idea of creating high quotas. So let me illustrate what they would do. They would say, hear ye, hear ye, I'm a rich landowner, and I've got a whole bunch of acres of land I need harvested. And you, the poor, have an opportunity to come work for me, and I'm going to pay you this wage. And you say, all right, hey, I need money, we need daily bread, Uh, what do we need to do? Show up at 7 o'clock, I'm going to have you sign on the dotted line, you'll be my employee for the day, and what we will do is we'll have you harvest, and at the end of the day, I'm going to pay you your wage. So you all come at 7, and you do the work, and at the end of the day you come and you say, hey, we harvested 40 acres of land. Boy, we're tired. But we're done, it's been harvested, where's our money? And I, the landowner, say, oh, I'm so sorry. But did you read the fine print? You only harvested 40 acres. But to get paid, you had to do a minimum of 60 acres. Sir, there was no way we could do 60 acres. We worked our tails off. A contract's a contract. Hey, be next, next to tomorrow? Come on back. Try it again. And these people would walk away. And remember, they were working for tomorrow's bread. Think about that man that had worked his fingers to a bone. Just to be told by the rich and powerful, we're not paying you, you didn't do enough. And to go home and tell your wife and waiting child, there's no food. High quotas were the way they were doing it. Number two, they would not only set high quotas but they would play games with wages. So maybe they would hit the number, and it would come time, and they'd say, you know what, I I don't have all the money I need, I'll get you tomorrow. Or or come back in a couple days and and you'll get paid. And they extended the terms by which they would pay. And, And I want you to recognize that while I don't think any of us, hopefully, my prayer is that none of us are deceitfully defrauding others. Might it be true that the subtle nature of fraud is in our lives? As a business owner, how careful I need to be at making sure that when I say a person's going to be paid, they're going to be paid. When I say it's payroll day, that it's payroll day, and I don't use the excuse, you know what, I don't have the money. Can we wait a week? When I say that I'm going to set a price for my customers that I hold to that price... That I don't gouge them with hidden fees. You know, we need to be careful that our business dealings mean something to God. I had the opportunity to go to a couple small groups this week, and this discussion came up about uh, defrauding others and, and, and the subtle ways that we may do it. And, and I loved what one guy in one of the small groups I did because it challenged me because I was convicted of some of my own wrongdoing. But what he said was, and I loved it, 
I hated it when he said it, but I loved it as I worked through it, was that one of the things that we do in the day of internet shopping is to go and talk with a salesman at a physical store, find out everything about the product, touch the product, look at the product, try the product out and everything, and then go home and buy it online. So we've wasted that guy's time because we had no intention of buying it there, but we wanted to use the guy for a product, use a guy for his services with no intention of buying. So let me tell you, when that guy said it in the small group, and I hated his guts when he did it, and he's in this, he's in this audience right now, okay? I'm sorry, Scott. I'm sorry. I confess my hatred towards you. You know what I did once? I went to Best Buy and a guy talked to me for a half an hour about a product and by the time I had left the, the store door, I had already bought it on Amazon. I had defrauded that guy. At no point did I tell him that I had any intention of not buying it because I'll tell you what, if you went to that guy and said, hey, I want to look at a stereo that I have no intention of buying from you. I'm going to buy it on Amazon and get it at a cheaper price, but I'm going to use you for your services. And I just want you to know I want the best customer service you can give me. If that guy knew that, you know what he would say? I got no time for you. I got no, I'm not going to waste my time if you've already made up your mind. And yet, that is a perfect picture of how we can defraud people as Christians. And it's unbecoming. And there's a myriad of other ways. There were a list in all the small groups that I went and was a part of, of myriads of ways that we defraud people, sometimes without even knowing it. We need to be careful. We need to be careful of that because James is clear that our business dealings matter a great deal to God because they involve other people. Let's be careful. How about they spent it selfishly? Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. A couple things about this verse I want to draw out. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. That word self-indulgence is you have gotten everything you've wanted. Now I know that right away you'll say, Ah, Tim, there's things I haven't gotten. That's not what it's saying. Because James is not stupid. He knows that the human heart can desire way more than it can ever have. What it's talking about is a certain type of lifestyle. That you have not only all that you need, but all that you really want. And so we are living in our day in self-indulgence. The idea here is that the lifestyles of the rich and famous wasn't a modern day phenomenon. It was happening in the first century. It began as early as the prodigal son who squandered his wealth on wild living. He lived a self-indulgent life. He spent his money on himself. Now Jesus told a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was so poor, he was filled with all kinds of sores, he was uh, marginalized in every way, that he would position himself at the table of the rich man. Literally what that means is, he would go through the garbage of the rich man. When it says that scraps fell off the table, what that means is he went through his trash. Because Lord knows the rich man would never let Lazarus sit at his table or at the foot of his table. He wouldn't want him there. What he's doing is is he's going through the trash. And that's what goes on. So the rich man has every luxury, everything that he could ever want. And the poor man, Lazarus, has nothing. And for 70 years or so, that's how it goes. Rich man, luxury. Poor man, nothing. 
until the day of judgment. And in the day of judgment, a great exchange takes place. Poor man becomes rich, rich man becomes poor. And the question is this morning, are we the rich man or the poor man? And I'm not talking just about our assets, I'm talking about our hearts. Is it more about us than it is about God? Is it more about our luxury and our living lavishly than it is on living faithfully for our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords? Now notice what he says. He says, we have fattened our hearts in a day of slaughter. The picture is a picture of a, just a, a stupid piece of livestock, an animal. And the animal's eating and eating and eating. The only thing he's concerned about is his belly is empty. So I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat. Little does he know that the master is like, hey, don't you know you're going to die today? Don't you know I'm taking you to slaughter? Aren't you worried about what's about to take place? No, the dumb animal, he's just hungry. He's just taking care of what he thinks he needs. And like dumb animals, unreasoning cattle, we go on, just as the unbelieving rich did, fattening ourselves with little thought of the guilt that we are taking in with every bite. Are we spending it selfishly as they did? Now here's the problem. Their lifestyle is so addictive. I went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and my favorite part of the vacation was the rent-a-car. Oh my goodness! My boys were like, Dad, we didn't even know cars came with all this stuff! Our car makes noises, but not those kinds of noises! I mean, our car talked to us, our car put pictures of where we were going, so we knew backwards and forwards. If we got too close to a car, it beeped and said, back off. I mean, it was glorious. It would answer my phone for me, just say, just talk. And I was like, i got to get me one of these. I didn't think, you know what, no, I'm happy with my old car. I wanted this car. Every part of me wanted to tell the rent-a-car guy, you know what, we'll just take this thing home. I like this. We all struggle with it, don't we? And just like every other sin, my issue with wanting a car may not be your issue because you may want clothes and it may not be the other person's issue who wants to just hoard their money away, but we all struggle with it. Randy Alcorn, who writes a lot about possessions, puts it this way. Promising fulfillment in money and things and lands and houses and cars and clothes and boats and campers and hot tubs and world travel. I'm out of breath. We live in a materialistic culture, don't we? Materialism has left us bound and gagged, pathetically thinking what the drug addict thinks, that our only hope is getting more of the same. A new house, a new car, some new clothes, a new boat, a new camper, a new hot tub, another vacation. That will make things better, right? And like the heroin addict, we say, just give me more, 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 more. And it's never enough. And we've got to recognize we've got a problem. Either we're going to serve money or we're going to serve God. We can't serve both. So what do we do? Fasten your seatbelts. We're dropping this plane down quick. The faith of the believing rich. So what do we need to do? Three things. 
and I'm going to leave it to you. You're sensible people. I'm not going to spend a lot of time pontificating on what you need to do because every one of us needs to do it differently. But number one, manage your riches wisely. Manage your riches wisely. God has entrusted you with his money. His money, not yours. It's not your money. I love it when my kids say, well, I'm going to use my money. What money? It's all my money. And that's what God says. Abraham Kuyper, one of my favorite theologians, put it this way. There's not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't shout out, this is mine, this belongs to me. God is jealous about his money. Every time that I'm at my catering shop and a crew's about to go out on a catering event, we have a checklist that we've got to go over. And the checklist is all of the supplies and all the things we need for that particular job. And I will inevitably, as the crew is about ready to leave, after they've loaded the vent, and they have to put three check marks, okay? We check, double check, triple check, quadruple check. We go way beyond Aaron Rodgers, okay? We check this thing over and over again. And then Tim does the fifth check. And inevitably what will happen is I'll grab the clipboard and I'll say, hey, I just want to double check things, which really is the fifth check. And my crew will be like, come on, micromanager. Don't you trust us? Don't you? I mean, come on. We've done this. Let us go on the event. I hate when he does this and all that stuff happens, okay? And then I have to remind them of an important truth. In that van is 5,000 dollars of mine five thousand dollars is on the line of this event let me switch the roles for you if i had five thousand of your dollars do you think you would grab my clipboard do you think you would want to make sure that everything is in an orderly place well let me tell you something god wants to grab our clipboard and say what are you doing with my money what are you doing And he wants to look over the list and he wants to see what you've checked off and what's missing. But a lot of us say, hey, don't micromanage me, God. This is my money. And God goes, I gave you the ability to gain wealth, the Bible says. Manage it wisely. Number two, earn it honestly. Two things I want you to draw from it. Work hard. A man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's in the Bible. Okay? You got to work. Number two, don't defraud people. In your business dealings. Address it. Don't gouge people. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We're going to learn that in a couple weeks. You should pay your taxes, by the way. Got a couple more days. It's a friendly reminder from your pastor. All the things financially should be done above board so that God's name may be glorified. Number three, share it generously. Instead of indulging yourself on the next new thing, instead of feeding yourselves of more and more stuff, instead of having the next new thing, might God want you to share what he's given to you? Larry Burkett, the the great Christian finance uh, um, teacher, always said this, don't raise your standard of living, raise your standard of giving. When is enough enough? When is big enough big enough? And I know these are hard things. I've got to challenge myself with it. So here's the question. It involves giving back to God. I'm going to say this and and just very, very humbly and very lovingly. I love you guys. You are some of my closest friends. And I'm going to say this because God's word says so, but I do so with the utmost love. If, If you look back over a period of time, 
in the last month, two, three, year time, two years, three years, and you've not given back to the Lord what He's given to you, I want to say this in the most loving way. You've got a problem with materialism. And what you're not hearing is an amount from me. What you're not hearing is a percent from me. What I'm saying is if you've not given back to the Lord in some level of proportion, as the Bible says, with your income, you've got a problem with materialism. And God doesn't want you to live there. He wants you to live in abundance. And abundance is knowing God in symbolizing my knowledge that you own everything and you've loaned this to me. I give a portion of what I make back to you. God says in that we will find his generosity given back to us share it generously not only with god but with others that brings me to the final point which is even quicker the foundation for us all and all i want to do here is i know when a preacher talks about money the walls went up we built bigger walls than trump wanted to okay walls went up and walls went up because we don't want people to talk about our money get your hand off my wall listen i don't want your money I don't want it. But God says he wants a handle on it so he can lead you into abundant life, not into bondage. So a couple things I want you to remember. I want to dot every I, cross every T as I close. God's concern isn't about assets, but about attitudes. He's about your attitude. What's your attitude towards your stuff, towards your money? God's critique isn't so much about people, but about priorities. God's not beating up people. God loves people. God's all about changing priorities, though. Maybe it's time some priorities need to change regarding our money and the way we use it and the way we are in bondage to it. Finally, God's counsel isn't for us to live lavishly, but to lay our stuff at his feet. Now, just give me a second to explain. Today's Palm Sunday. And the great picture of Palm Sunday is the people set the garments on the path so that Jesus might make his way into Jerusalem. What a great application today for us to lay our stuff at the feet of Jesus as he enters into our lives, that we would give him control, we would give him ownership, and that we would lay our stuff at his feet so that he might have custodial rights to all that we have and all that we spend. Let me close with this and then we'll pray. A businessman once had an angel visit him, promising to grant one request. The man asked for a copy of the stock market page one year into the future. He studied the numbers, knowing that if he knew the future exchange, he would make a boatload of cash. And gloating over how much he was going to make, because his knowledge of the future would allow so. But as he was looking at the stock futures, his eyes glanced across the page. There he saw a picture of himself in the obituary column. Suddenly his new wealth faded into, the real, into real insignificance, into the light of his own impending death. Brothers and sisters, the life in the here and now is not final. The wicked may live luxuriously on earth and oppress the righteous with no consequence. But the test of the final judgment is impending. It is coming sooner than we think. Our faith requires us to accept the fact that God has given us what we have and therefore we must serve Him with it. And if we trust in the Lord, then we will be good stewards of our money and our possessions as He entrusts it to us. He owns it all, but one day He's going to ask us to give an accounting for it. 
Money talks. Your money's talking. My money's talking. The question is, what is it saying? 